I think someone's playing hooky. Nobody is moving. All right. How you guys doing? I used to read it every week years ago, so I can I know how to read the Bible. Let's do this. Here we go. <clears throat> Matthew twenty six. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, "As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified." Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival. And they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they, continue, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. All right, I did it. Hey, good to see you guys. Glad you guys are here. Um, so I'm trying to think if I have any housekeeping things to say. I don't think I do. Um, I, I make it a point to not talk about things that are not this. Um, I don't talk about music very often. But I, we just, just a heads up, so you know, me and the band, we put out a record yesterday, um, and we haven't done that in a while. Um, this is a tradition I started doing in the late '90s. Holy cow, putting records out, and dude, I'm old. <laughs> see if I can get another one out before I'm 40. We'll see. Um, and so it's called Tempters, and it's on iTunes and Spotify and YouTube and all the things all the millennial kids are into. Um, it's all out there. Old man Tommy just put a record out yesterday. Um, and so that's out, and it's, it's um, the whole idea of the record. It's songs that we've sang here, so you'll recognize um, most of them. Um, and the whole idea of the record is it's sort of the journey of God's people. It's, it's um, the order of the record, and sort of the, a lot of the lyrics and stuff came when I was reading a lot of Ernst Kaysemann, which is a, a German theologian and biblical scholar during the, during the Nazi occupation. Um, and he was in prison. And while he's in prison, he writes this commentary on the book of Hebrews, as you do. And, um, and it's called uh, The Wandering People of God. And this is the whole idea sort of of the flow of the record, God's people. Uh, I, I think it compares a lot to sort of a lot of modern things that the American church is dealing with. And so I think it's, it deals, um, it, it lands well and it, it flows sort of the whole idea is, is God's people sort of in temptation to follow other kings and being called back and repenting. And then sitting at the table of communion and then offering that to other people and finding resurrection. So um, check that out. It's, it's just everywhere. You can stream it and all kinds of stuff. Um, so there's that. And uh, here's today's passage. I love this passage. There's some things here that are, that are really important to me that I, I wanted to point out to you. There's actually a lot of ways I wanted this to go. Um, and I had to cut a lot of them. Um, I wanted to talk about the high priest and their scheming. I want to talk about who Caiaphas was. 
Uh, and I don't have time to do all that. We know some about Caiaphas. He was very crafty. Um, and I don't have time to do all that. So maybe I'll write something this week and post it. I'm not really sure. Don't hold me to that. I've got other stuff to do. Um, but I'm going to focus on one thing in particular. The way Matthew orders this, Matthew is not writing chronologically. He's not like everyone else, all the other gospel writers. He's a theologian, and he is a pastor, and he is creating a dichotomy between two people who are hearing the same message and responding differently to it. Um, Two very different people, this woman who anointed him and Judas Iscariot. Um, And all of this is on purpose. He's doing this for a reason, and we're going to talk about that today. So if you would... Uh, Take a couple minutes and we're going to pray and prepare ourselves and then jump into this passage, shall we? Father, thank you. Thank you for this place and for every single person that you've gathered here. Um, I pray that everyone here would feel welcomed and loved. Um, I pray that uh, they would be seen as equal. I pray that they would have a seat at the table, that they would taste and, and see that the way that you are offering us is... It's good. That you yourself are good. And uh, I pray that this morning that you would open our eyes to some things that we need to see, that we would repent. I pray that we would change, set us on a path towards the people that we are supposed to be. Call us back. And uh, may this be a peaceful time where we can dwell in your presence, where we can put aside all the, the busyness of the week and uh, just be here with you for a few minutes, as things should be, with you at the very center of it all. In your name. Amen. We're going to start right here in uh, in verse 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, so I'm going to pause there. What things? He's been been in the temple. He's been debating with the religious leaders. Um, He's been saying very inflammatory things about the very powerful religion in their city. The Jewish temple is there, one of the seven wonders of the world. Incredibly powerful men are running it. Um, and Jesus has been condemning them. He's been speaking out against them. He's saying all of this has gone bad, and none of it is what it's supposed to be, um, and it's all going to fall, and its end is coming soon. And then he gathers them outside the city. They're leaving, and Jesus, all of Jesus' disciples are there, and we're going to talk about who they were, and, and not just the 12, but the massive crowd of people gathered. Um, he says, when he had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, or, or uh, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So Jesus tells his disciples one more time, as he's told them like 20 times already, I'm going to be killed. This ends badly. You may have noticed I've been making a lot of people mad, very powerful people, and when you make powerful people mad, um, in any time frame, in any period in which humans have lived. Making powerful people mad is never a good idea. Um, but he has been doing this. And he's telling them, once again, this ends poorly. This ends with me being killed, being executed. The disciples have never believed Jesus when he says this. They have always pushed back against it. Peter says, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen at all. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Like, you're wrong, and you're taking part in a whole other way that you think God enters the world. They always believe, the Jewish people always believe that their Davidic king, their Messiah, was going to come through the sword, through force. That they were going to rise up and riot in rebellion, which is what they're trying to stop here. And they're going to rebel and they're going to overthrow the Roman Empire and all those working with it. And they were going to purge these people and set up their nationalistic nation again. And Jesus is there to bring them back to the way things were meant to be. And he wants them to know we are not here to go to war with the nations. We are here to bless the nations. The kingdom of God does not come in this way. The kingdom of God comes in a way that you would never expect. 
uh, the pouring out of God's people and the images of God, not the conquering of them. And he says this, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be killed. And in their interpretation, if the Messiah is killed, he's not the Messiah. And so they're pushing back against this. So Jesus says this, um, and Matthew gathers two different responses to these words. I'm going to be killed. Matthew offers two people back to back. Matthew has already told us who Judas is. I think it's back in chapter 10 where he says, uh, like Judas enters the picture. He says Judas, and in parentheses, who would eventually betray Jesus. So you're told right off the bat who he is. And it's like sort of like, keep an eye on this guy. Um, And then later, Matthew goes into the whole scheme and lays out how it all goes down. Um, But right here, Matthew is just throwing Judas's name in just for a second to create this dichotomy. So let's go first to the first character, the first response to Jesus' words of, I'm going to be killed, okay? Um, It starts in verse 6. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, By the way, that that makes all of them unclean, by the way, being in the home of a leper. Just wanted to point that out to you. Ponder that sometime. Um, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, um, who was this woman? We're going to talk about who she was, what this was that she poured on his head, what it means for her in that day. Um, Perfume in the ancient world was very, very expensive. I mean, it's it's expensive now. Um, Very expensive. I, I went to buy a jar of, a jar, an alabaster jar, a bottle of perfume for my wife one time, uh, and I, I was a sucker. They saw me coming. I walked in to like Macy's or something, walk up to the counter, I'm going to buy my wife a bottle of this, and they're like, she's like, oh, okay, um, eau de parfum or eau de toile? And I was like, okay. Uh, what's the difference? I shouldn't have asked that. Because she didn't tell me. She just said, here's the eau de parfum. Now, eau de parfum costs three times more than the toilet one. <laughs> you didn't know that. The word toilet's in the name. The cheaper one is the toilet one. I bought the parfum. But when they tell you the price, you got to keep a straight face because it's for your wife. You're like, Okay. Cool. Wrap that in that bag. And here's my card. Um, This woman, the amount that she spent on this perfume, we can add this up, the words that are used and the way it's described. um, It's worth about a year's wages in Tampa. It's worth like $52,000. And so the sticker shock there. Yeah, wrap that up. It's cool. Wrap it up. $52,000 worth about of perfume. Um, and there is a, uh, a description here. Matthew uses the word perfume. Mark uses the word uh, that we translate as nard. I don't like that word. Um, the, the, the original, older manuscripts, a lot of it say spike nard. There's a reason these words are used. Spike nard sounds worse. Um, but the word, the word basically, the main ingredient in this stuff is something called myrrh. Myrrh is an ancient sort of uh, fragrance uh, that comes from the myrrh tree that was used all the way back in ancient Egypt. Like, it's, used, it's been used a long time. It's only used for one thing, though. It's got a specific smell um, that is used. It's, it's put on bodies before they are embalmed. Um, so everyone knows that smell. 
Um, in the ancient world, you came into a lot more contact with death than we do now. Someone dies, we hide away. Nobody ever sees. You go through your whole life, never see a dead body or smell it or anything like that. Um, in ancient world, you would see it. People would die in your own house of old age. Like, um, and so you would, when this happened, first thing you would do is you would, you would sort of put perfume on them to make them smell good. Um, and it's a specific smell that everyone would recognize as burial perfume. Okay. Um, that is exactly what she is using here. Jesus recognizes the smell and he comments on it in the passage. Um, and that has specific meaning. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, so this was a liquid that she used a lot of it. It's a full amount that would be, would have been used to Im- sort of embalm somebody, make them smell good. Um, we don't know who this woman necessarily was. We can tell from the text certain things. I want to point out she is not the same woman that Luke describes as um, the woman of sin, that oftentimes people say it's Mary, and they call Mary a prostitute. Mary's not a prostitute, by the way. She's not. Stop with that stuff. She's not a prostitute. Um, um, there's a woman in Luke who comes in. She's called a woman of sin, and she comes in to the middle of a meal where Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee, and other things are happening, and it says she washes his, his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. It's this beautiful sim- symbolic thing that is happening. Not the same woman as here. This woman has been with Jesus and following Jesus. She's likely one of his disciples. I'll get to that in a minute because you're just like, what? Um, uh, we'll get to that. Um, but she has been listening to his teaching, which is why she's doing what she's doing here. Um, so Jesus had 12 named disciples, 12, uh, the 12, right? Named male disciples. Um, and they're all Jewish boys. And... The reason Jesus has 12 specific male disciples around him is not because Jesus plans on uh, his church always being led by men. Um, if that's the case, then they should all be Jewish and like teenagers. A lot of them act like teenagers anyways. Um, but what Jesus is doing here is he's being rabbinical and he's making, painting a picture. So it would look like this. When, it, when a rabbi gathers his students, they sit in a circle around him. Jesus has chosen 12 Jewish boys, all from different sects of Judaism, except for the couple of, uh, a couple, bleh, I can't talk today, except for the brothers that are in the group. But there's tax collectors uh, partnering with the Roman Empire. There's zealots who would normally assassinate the people partnering with the Roman Empire. Think about that. The people Jesus has gathered at the table are different. They're all different. And there's 12 of them. Um, when they gather, it sort of looks like this. Jesus is in the center. All his 12 male disciples, Jewish disciples, are around him. Everything rabbis did had metaphor and purpose, and it was teaching a message, and it was a picture of what they were doing, of what their ministry was. Um, Jesus is presenting himself as the people of God wandering in the desert. He is the tabernacle in the center. He calls himself several times the temple. He says, tear this temple down, in three days I will rebuild it. He's talking about himself, not the building, even though they thought he was talking about the building. He's making a point. Um, in the wilderness, there was a tabernacle, and the 12 tribes would gather around the tabernacle. And this is how Jesus would teach. And he would move around, and they would all be sitting, and he would be standing. Um, this is the picture. Jesus wants everyone gathering to look and see. Right off the bat, I know what he's doing. He's representing the temple. Okay? Um, and these are the 12 tribes. So he's presenting himself as a messianic figure. He's doing a lot in just what he's doing. But it was not just 12 disciples that Jesus had. Two of the gospels specifically mention 
at least 70 other disciples. One of them mentioned 70, one of them mentioned 72. Um, And uh, so around these other disciples would be a gathering of others, and these disciples would sort of be the heads of these others, and they would be teaching them the things of God. And these other disciples would be teaching others. Um, At one point, one of the Gospels mentions 500 disciples following Jesus. Um, Twice, you see massive groups of 5,000 people listening to Jesus teach. Um, At some level, he's kind of like a megachurch pastor. Like, he's got a lot of people following him, like tons. Um, And uh, Paul even mentions in his writings... um, we saw uh, the, the Jesus followers saw him crucified, buried, and they saw him risen. And if you don't believe us, ask one of the 500 who heard him speak, who were his followers after it. So there's, they're still alive. In other words, he's saying, you don't have to believe me. You can go ask them. You know them. They're everywhere. They saw all of this happen, 500 people. Um, so this woman is one of these disciples because she's been listening to the teachings. These, these 70, 72, I think it's 72 disciples, um, were following Jesus. They were there. They were present when he's um, walking into the city on the first day, like two days earlier. Um, and they're all there wearing, waving palm fronds, right? And they're saying, Hosanna to the king. They're, they're mounting a counter parade to the parade going on on the other side of town, which was um, the Roman emperor. Um, not the emperor, the, the uh, pilot and all that. Um, and they were there during that. They were there um, when he was... Um, teaching in the synagogue. They would have been cheering and listening. Um, They were there when he speaks in the temple. They're there when he announces his death in the previous paragraph. This woman hears Jesus teaching about his death, and this is her response. It is different than the response of all the disciples who are constantly saying, that's not going to happen. Stop talking about it. This woman hears it and instantly, from that meeting, goes out And either gets from her house or purchases embalming perfume. Jesus says, I'm going to die. This is how the kingdom of God comes. Not through conquering with the sword, but through laying down the image of God. Laying down our lives and pouring, being broken and poured out for people. She hears this. And knowing none of the disciples really believe him. And they're sort of scoffing at this. She runs out to make a statement. And she gets this perfume and she brings it back. And in the middle of this gathering, she would not have been present in the room when they're having their meal. That would have been for the 12, um, where he's teaching them. And this woman barges in to this meeting, and she walks up to Jesus, and she breaks this thing, and she pours it over his head as if to say, I agree that you're going to die. I believe you. And the kingdom of God will come at great expense. And I will respond by bringing great expense and joining you in this process. And Jesus knows. The sense fills the room. He knows what is happening here. And he says himself, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. She did. Not one of the inner disciples. None of them would have taken part in this. Um, And she walks in and she pours this over him as if to say, I'm embalming you now for what is coming in the future. Okay. The disciples are mad about this. Why? Because it's offensive. It's sort of like um, someone emails you or texts you and you, you get in a group text and they say, hey, I got some really bad news from the doctor and I have a disease and it's life-threatening and I, I want to gather you guys together to talk to you. And then one of your friends shows up to the meeting 
with a tombstone with your name on it. Hey, I brought you this. I'm just going to leave it here. And everyone's mad. Why are they mad? Well, of course they're mad. Why would you do that? That is what is happening. I mean, look at the disciples' reaction. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were really mad. Why are you, why are you embalming him? Stop with, with this. This is crazy. He's not going to die. I want, I want to pause here for a second. I want you to think about who was Matthew? In this scenario, where's Matthew? He's mad. He's at the table. He's right. He's telling his own story. He's in the room. He's sitting at the table, doesn't believe Jesus is going to die, believes Jesus is going to rise up with an army and conquer Rome. Um, and he doesn't believe, and he's mad at her because Jesus says, I'm going to die. And she goes, I know, here you go. Okay, let's, I'm going to go ahead and start burying you. And Jesus is like, thank you. And they're like, why? What's going on? Now, um, it goes a little farther. They're, they're really mad about this. And so they respond and they say, why this waste, they ask. Why is it a waste? Because they don't think he's going to die. It's a waste. Also, um, verse 9, this perfume could have been sold at high price. We don't need it. You could have sold it and the money given to the poor. You easily could have just taken all this, sold it, and, and given this money to the poor. Um, make sure I have my notes here. Where are we at? Okay. And then Jesus responds. It says in verse 10, aware of this, Jesus says to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. I want to pause for a second. I want to talk about this last line. Because I hear this line used constantly by American Christians to relieve themselves of the, of, of the responsibility that we have to the poor. To say, I mean, I don't, I don't have to be generous. I don't have to do this. Because even Jesus said... Um, the poor are always going to be among you. So if I have a chance to do something great, I should do it because there's always going to be poor. I can't fix this problem. Um, and they use the words of Jesus. Uh, people who do this do not understand how the Bible works or what Jesus is doing or the fact that he's literally quoting scripture. That literally means the opposite of what I just said. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. And in the Jewish mindset, you didn't have to actually quote a big piece of scripture. You quote a portion of it, and they memorized the, the, the Pentateuch. All these boys have the Pentateuch memorized. Jesus quotes a little piece of the Pentateuch knowing that they know the rest of it. Okay? It starts like this. There will always be the poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Okay? If you ever hear somebody use this passage um, as a way of, of saying, I don't need to help the poor. I, Jesus didn't help the poor. I, I, I've literally debated pastors who have said uh, the church doesn't need to be helping the poor. Even Jesus said this. I'm like, how did you get this job? Um, um, Deuteronomy 15 is what he's quoting, which reemphasizes, yes, you do. That This is who we are. We're a generous people. We help the poor. And they will always be there. So there will always be work to do. Um, and so Jesus affirms what they just said. Yes, I affirm your words about giving to the poor and you believing that. But he also says, but you will not always have me with me because they, they believed they would have Jesus with them to conquer Rome. And so he says, I affirm your belief in that. I condemn your belief, your disbelief in my words that I've been teaching you, that this is how the kingdom of God comes. 
I affirm that, and I, can, I, I affirm you here, and I condemn you here. Um, you're missing it. Um, so the disciples think he's not going to die. And even if he did, this is a waste, because it's not like we wouldn't be there to embalm him the way a, a rabbi's disciples would do. If the rabbi dies, the disciples are there to embalm him. And they weren't, though. They weren't there. 24 hours later, Jesus would be arrested, tried illegally under the dark of night by powerful people, and his execution would begin. Within 24 hours, these disciples, they all bailed. All of these boys. But not all of Jesus' disciples bailed. Just the 12. Do you know who stuck around? The women. All of them. The scriptures tell us this several times. All four of the gospels show Mary of Magdala leading a group of women at no small risk to themselves. Easily could have been wrapped up in in all of this and been killed. Um, And they've accompanied Jesus through the passion, through the crucifixion, through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And when you get to the final scene of Jesus hanging on the cross, Matthew says this, many women were there watching. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. They were there the whole time following him. And when all of these men had, had abandoned Jesus, they did not. In the same way that all of these men denied that Jesus, the, the kingdom's coming through power and the sword and might. And when Jesus says, no, 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 I am going to die. This woman hears it and she rushes out to buy some embalming perfume and comes back and says, I, I believe you. I believe you. And she barges into a room of non-believers in this whole thing, in the kingdom of God and how it comes. And she shows them what's up. This woman gets it. She sees the path forward. She knows and she understands that the kingdom of God will come at great cost. And so she goes out and spends great cost instantly. And so she comes and gives something of great cost. She is the very first one in all of Christianity, in all of Christianity, to really sacrifice great cost for Jesus. She is it. She is the first one of all of us. And we don't even know her name. However, there is one other person at the table who believes that Jesus is going to die. And he's at the opposite end of the spectrum. And he's part of the in crowd. And we know his name. We know everything about him. His name is Judas. And Matthew puts this dichotomy side by side as if, his, as if to paint a picture for his church that says, hey, who are you in the story? So let's, let's look at him. Uh, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Um, so the only other person who believed that Jesus was really going to die saw it as an opportunity for his own gain. The, the unnamed woman saw it as something she should take part in. He saw it as, I think I can profit from this. This is for me. For her, it was like, this is for the world. Two vastly different outlooks on this whole thing. Here we have 
exact polar opposite dichotomy is represented here. It's the same thing that Matthew is doing when he, when, he, when he talks about the Mount of Transfiguration and he paints it in the exact opposite of the Mount of Calvary as if to say, oh, the glory of Jesus isn't, isn't shown on the Mount of Transfiguration in all this light and white and brightness and miracles. Um, that's not where the glory is. The glory is on Calvary when everything he's broken and he's naked and his masculinity and his beard has been ripped out and, and it's, this is, it's displayed here. Matthew's always doing these dichotomies. You think the kingdom of God's like this, but it's like this. And you think it's going to come like this, but it comes like this. And you think that this is the best way to fulfill the work of God. It's, it's this. It's the opposite. And he's always doing this. And he's doing that here. Because what we have is, we have one who was well known. Judas Iscariot. We know his name. We know how long he followed Christ. We have some of his words, how he responds. He's well known. And then we have a woman who we don't even know her name. We have, we have a man who is close to Jesus. The inner circle. And we have a woman who's mysterious. We don't know what the role was. We don't know her relationship to the disciples or to Jesus. Um, we have one who has access to all of the money. He's the treasurer. He's the money keeper. We know that there were several very wealthy women married to Roman officials who were funding Jesus' ministry. He's the dude holding all the money. And then we have this woman who the only thing we're told about her is that she gave $50,000 away to take part in this. So we have one gathering it all, and we have one pushing it all away. And then you have, um, you have one who benefited greatly from Jesus' death. And then you have somebody who, who it took part in it at great cost. And then you have someone who, despite everything that we see here, this is what we want. Everything that Judas was is what we want. Power, prestige, his name, he's, he's, he's close to Jesus. He, um, we know who he is. He's, he's in the inner circle, the place, the ring of power, right? This is what we want. How does that end for him? He mourns every decision he's made and he commits suicide in a field. And then we have this woman who has nothing that any of us would ever consider the way that we want our ministry or our church or our leadership to go. None of it. We don't know who she is. She's not a person of power. She doesn't seem to have much. She's giving an awful lot. Doesn't seem to be getting back a lot in return. You know what Jesus says about her? Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What a dichotomy. And Matthew wants his church to sit and he's going to read this out loud to them or whoever's left after his death is going to read this out to them. He's going to say, who are you in the story? Actively right now, what role are you playing? And Matthew's letting them know, I was, the, I was one of them. I didn't believe I thought it was something else. I've always wanted to rub elbows with power and prestige and money. That's why I was a tax collector, oppressing my own people, taking part in the oppression of the Roman Empire. I betrayed my own people. I was one of them, but here's who this woman was. And every one of us 12 should have been more like this unnamed woman. Every one of us. This is what Matthew wants his people to see. Some have all the privileges and the honors of Judas, but mostly think of themselves. Some have all the disadvantages and the difficulties of the unnamed woman, but they have a complete faith and would gladly give anything to see others come into the kingdom. 
They are formed in the, in the image of Christ. And it costs them dearly. And Jesus gives her great honor. And it's as if Matthew is saying to his people, read the story. Tell me which one you're trying to be. Did you come to the kingdom of God? Did you come to the church for prestige? Did you come here for influence? Did you come here for power? Did you come here to be part of something cool or some kind of identity or any of that? Is that why you came? Right now you're a little bit over here. What we're looking for is this over here. And our hope is that we can move ourselves from here to here. That we can become these kinds of people. This woman is the first person in the Bible to understand the true call to follow Jesus. She's the very first one. It's not a call. Okay, there's a, there's a, um, there's a book. I read it every few years. It's, it's a classic in Christianity. Uh, it's written by Thomas A. Kempis. It's called The Imitation of Christ. You've, maybe you've read this. It's an incredibly brilliant book. Um, um, I have a problem with the title because the point of Christianity is not the imitation of Christ. It is the participation with Christ. This is what this is. This is what this is all about. Um, It's it's not simply a call to imitate Christ. It's to participate with Christ in giving at great cost of ourselves. The suffering, the breaking, the pouring out of Jesus is not something that we just believe and we say, I affirm that to be true. Um, That's not what we're doing here. It's something that we practice. Atonement is not a belief system. It's a practice. It is something that we do. It's not something, I believe in this atonement theory. I believe in this atonement theory. No, you, you might believe in it, but what that means is you will practice that. If you believe in penal substitutionary atonement, if you believe in Christus Victor, if you believe in new covenant um, atonement theology, whatever you are, your life, this should be like your ethics in action. How you believe salvation comes into the world is how you will practice bringing salvation into the world. You are participating in the work of Jesus. Paul says this over and over to the, into the church. We love to ignore it, though. Watch what Paul says. I'll put a few verses up here. Uh, first Peter, he writes to him and he says, uh, First Peter, I mean, sorry, Peter writes this. And he says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Participate in it. Pour yourself out, like, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What does that mean? Resurrection. This is making things whole again is when we celebrate. Believing something and just singing a song and feeling emotional is not what should bring us joy. It's the participation in it. Um, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, um, and this is a huge one. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. So there's, a, there's portions of his life that are already participating in, with, in, with the life of Christ, um, with the work of Jesus, with the cross. He's been beaten. He's been, um, he's been stoned, left for dead a couple times. He's been imprisoned. The reason he's doing these things Um, that that he's suffering these things is because he's standing up and speaking the words that Jesus spoke to people in power and saying, this is not the way. This is the way. And the words of Jesus are threatening to the constructs of our world. They are. And he says, and some parts of my life has has already participated in the sufferings of Christ in this way. And I find joy in that. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. He says, and there's still some parts that are lacking there's some parts of me that I, um, that I have not let participate in the life of Jesus. But I'm trying to fill those up. I'm trying to fill Christ into every part of my life and have me as a holistic person participating in every area of my life in the life of Jesus. 
in the work of Christ. And verse 25, I have become its servant. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ. I have become its servant by the commission, of, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. What is the word of God again? It's Jesus. The word of God is Jesus. It's not a book. It's not pages. The word of God, scriptures tell us several times, is Jesus. It is the message. It is the final word. It is the message God has for us. When Paul talks about the word of God, he's not, he's not talking about literally his letter he's writing. Okay? Like, like the scripture, the canon of scripture is vital to Christianity. It is how we understand who Jesus was. But Jesus is alive. Um, Jesus is the word of God. He is the ultimate message. And when we look at Jesus, when we picture Jesus, when we read about how Jesus lived, um, we are reading the very words of God and we're seeing the very face of God. So God gave me, I have become its servants, the church's servant, uh, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now, why does he speak this way? Because Jesus spoke this way about himself. Paul writes about Jesus and he says, Jesus gives us God's image in its fullness. When we look at At Jesus, we see God. So Jesus doesn't just show us the face of God, though. Jesus also shows us what humanity was always supposed to be. Um, One of the amazing things about the book of Matthew is that it presents Jesus as living the entire history of Israel in one book, in one lifetime. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, At the beginning of the scriptures, you have... um, a lot of words about, about creation, about the stars and all this. You have that in the beginning of the scriptures. You have the Magi and you have them looking at the stars and talking about them. You have a story about Pharaoh slaughtering all the, all the boys under the age of three. You have Herod doing that in the life of Christ. You have a flight from Egypt. Um, uh, in the, in, at the beginning of Israel's story, you have a flight from Egypt as well in, in the beginning of Jesus' story in Matthew. Um, you, have, um, the, you have Moses speaking the, the laws of God on Sinai. At Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai, standing there teaching the people the law of God, you have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount speaking all the same words and reinterpreting them and giving them to the people, taking the form of Moses. You have Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, followed by a trip through the, uh, the, the uh, Jordan River into the Promised Land. And you have Jesus, who spends 40 days in the wilderness, and then instantly he goes and is baptized uh, before entering into the city and his ministry starts. You have Israel um, ending up sinning, turning against God, committing idolatry, and suffering exile. And their cry is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you have Jesus never doing any of the things that Israel did, but taking their place on the cross, suffering their exile, speaking out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And us today, Paul looks back and he says in the same way that Jesus was the fullness of God and that Jesus lived out what Israel is supposed to live out. I, in my body, and us in the church, will live out the life of Jesus for all to see. The same thing Jesus did, we will do. We're not imitating, we're participating in it. And when the world looks at us, that's what they should see. Um, and then Paul says this, this is my favorite thing, First Corinthians chapter 4. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, the angels, as well as human beings. What Paul's saying is, this is huge, all of the cosmos are watching you, church, to, to see the story of God in the flesh. All of the cosmos are watching you. The word he uses here, the Greek word theatric, uh, it's literally, that's the word that is used, theatric. What he's basically saying is this. He's saying, um, the church is God's spectacle. The church is God's theatrical performance of the cross. We are acting out the life of Christ. We are the theatrical performance. The world should look at us 
and see the story of Jesus right there for us. I had a guy a um, few years back. I can tell stories like that a few years ago because I don't think they're going to be in the room. <laughs> um, and it's always risky, right? Um, but he came up after the service and he was like, he's like, Pastor, I want to talk to you. And his brow was furrowed. So I was like, oh, this is going to be serious. And he says, you don't have a cross. We didn't have, we didn't have our like, mural in the front of the building yet. He says, I, you don't have a cross anywhere on this building and not even on steeple. Why don't you have a cross on your steeple? And I was like, is it important to you that a cross made of metal or wood or paint be present? He's like, yeah, so people know you're Christians. I'm like, this has always been the problem. That's the definition of whitewashed sepulcher, right? Like, it's, it's like, if I want somebody to see the cross, they should look at us. We should be living a cruciform life, a life that looks like the cross. We pour ourselves out. So, like, putting it on the building takes that responsibility off of us and just tells them, hey, we're Christians, by the way. Um, you can wear a cross, like, on your necklace, on your shirt, on your, on your hat. You can put it on your bumper sticker, your car, or your plumbing business, whatever you want. Like, you can put it wherever you want. But if you're not willing to give an ounce, of your, uh, the, an ounce of yourself to pour yourself out to bring salvation to anyone or to relieve anyone's suffering or to restore anyone, you're a whitewashed sepulcher. That's what you are. How many times have we watched these award shows, incredibly wealthy people living lives exactly how, like, people, most of us would think that looks like a lot of fun, but taking part in things we would never take part in, whatever. And they're wearing giant Roman execution devices, on their necklaces, right? That's what, it's, it's the equivalent of like wearing like, uh, yo, check out my electric chair necklace. Cool, right? <laughs> like, and, and they're wearing these. You can wear that all you want. You can put it on your hats and on your cars, but if you're not willing to give up an ounce of your power or your honor or your discomfort or your wealth in order to ease the suffering of others, then, then that cross is a lie and you are a whitewashed sepulcher. That's what we become. It is... Nothing to do with a cross being on your building. I think the accusation, the hint was, it was like passive aggressive, like, what are you, a pluralist? No, you are. Like, it's, come on, like. <laughs> Paul expected every single believer to embody the story of Christ. And in Paul's mind, to be in Christ is to live in community that is shaped by his story, by the story of Christ. Christianity has nothing to do, honestly, with a personal relationship with God. It is a community of people who exist and live in a way that tells the world a different story than everyone else is telling. That is how we are called to live. It is not about, if, you, if, you, if you, you're really concerned with your personal relationship and you want to get really strong, that's great. The reason you should be getting strong is so that you can bring that to the church and make us strong communally. Every word Paul wrote to his church when he said you should be gentle, you should be loving, um, you, should be, um, you should show kindness and gentleness and self-control. He's not talking to you personally, individually. He's not talking to anyone individually. He's speaking to a body of people. You should be gentle to the world, kind. You should be long-suffering and patient. This is what love is. It's communal. Um, New Testament scholar and theologian Michael Gorman uh, says this. He says, and this is wordy, I'll admit that. Take a picture of it if you want, ponder it over the week, okay? Uh, The atonement produces not merely beneficiaries, but participants. Judas was a beneficiary. This woman was a participant. That's the difference. Participants in the cross and therefore also participants in the life-giving and self-giving of God. The cross is remembered, celebrated, and performed as the work of Christ, but also, ultimately, as the work of the church. It's not something Jesus, it's not something that just Jesus did, it's something we do. We break ourselves and allow ourselves to be poured out so that people can be made whole again, so that every broken thing can be made 
right, so they can be reconciled to each other, that we can bring um, all, all of our divisions of, of racial and national lines, just we can bring us together at the foot of the cross and say, this is us. We are here for each other. And so our relationship with the world is cruciform. This is how it looks. If you've ever sat and wondered, what is the point of the church? And I get questions. I'm like, wouldn't, I mean, isn't, uh, isn't there a lot more efficient ways that, that I can get everything the church is supposed to be giving? Like I could give money over here and get counseling and be fed. I could, I could subscribe to TED Talks online and I'm get my motivational speak on. I could, I could, I could just buy worship albums. Like I, I can get everything I want without the church. The reason you think that is because you're a consumer and you've been trained and indoctrinated to think that somehow the church has anything to do with consumerism or capitalism. It has nothing to do with that. The church is a, a people, a community of people who exist in a different way. A community of people. <laughs> we got one guy. Yes, Mickey. We have a community of people that are living out the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ as a way of telling the world a different story. The first person to ever model this, the church, the first person to ever do, ever do this was this woman, and we don't even know her name. She's the very first one. She barged in the middle of Jesus' disciples who weren't getting it, and she said, what, do you not get it? It looks like this, and she poured it out. She says, I'm listening, and I get it, and it looks like this, and I might be the only one in the room who gets it, but I'm with you. I wish we could know more about this woman, I'd like to know who she is. I would look at her and I would say, whoever you were, thank you for being there for Jesus, for being the only one in the room who believed him and understood how the kingdom enters into the world. What you did was beautiful. We will never forget you. You were the first one to see the kingdom of God. You were the first one. We owe a lot to her. And still to this day, she is ignored. And she shouldn't be. Communion servers, go ahead and um, gather the elements and spread around the room. Communion is like the baby step towards taking part in the life of Christ. I mean, what do you think baptism is? Immersing yourself in the life of Christ, right? Um, but communion is like this, this, this simple, small reminder. The body of Christ was broken and poured out for you so that you could find salvation and healing. So that you could know God, be reconciled to God, and participate as the image of God you were always meant to be. And so we take some time in prayer, and we repent, and we take a piece of the bread, and dip it in the wine, and we eat it as if to say, Father, there's parts of me that have not been touched by your gospel. Take this inside of me and touch those places now. Help us to repent and to change to be generous, to hold lightly to all of these things that are so important to us, to just let them go. And let's do that now. Let's, uh, as, as one people, all come to the table of Christ together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our time in communion now. Fashion us in your image, Father, as a people. In your name, amen. Talk to Jesus.